Okay, right, what we're going to do is I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 4 and from verse 1. Where Paul, following the three chapters that's gone, says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely gentle, humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we just ask again that as we come to these wonderful verses that teach us great truths about your church and all that you want your church to be, we pray again that you'll help us to understand and to interpret and to apply these words to our lives, to see how we need to be living today to be your obedient children. So Father, speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Christians in the church often get a, a bad press because of our supposed lack of unity. And this, it's said, is one of the, the biggest turn-offs for non-Christians. Because we claim that we have been reconciled to God and reconciled to one another through faith in Christ. And yet the way we live, so often the accusation goes, is often an outright denial of this. As there are many Christians, many churches who far from living together in unity, who will hardly speak to one another, never mind meet together or join together in any meaningful expression of unity. Now personally, I have to say, I'm not so sure that this uh, is as big an issue for non-Christians as some claim. For most people, it, it seems to me, don't actually think deeply enough about faith for them to, to reach that point of writing off Christianity on this kind of semi-intellectual basis. Now, rather, I think this is more of a, a problem, more of an irritant for some Christians rather than for non-Christians. But that's not to say that the lack of unity among Christians is not at times shameful. And the reasons for disunity at times, incredible. For example, I once read what was claimed to be the true story of someone driving along the, the rural roads of the United States. And they went through a small town and the outskirts of the town came upon a church with a big sign out front. And this is what was written on that sign. The original church of God, number two. You've got to have the right sense of humour for that. Then there's the story of, of two men who are standing on a bridge and one is about to jump off and the other one is trying to talk him out of it. The man asked the jumper, so are you a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, a Hindu, or what? The jumper replies, a Christian. The man says, small world, me too. Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox? The jumper answers, Protestant. The man replies, me too, what denomination? The jumper says, Baptist. The man replies, me too, Southern or Northern Baptist? The man answers, Northern Baptist. The man replies, me too, Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? 
the jumper answers, Northern Conservative. The man replies, me too. Northern Conservative Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Eastern Region? The man answers, Great Lakes Region. The man replies, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Council of 1912? The jumper answers, 1912. The man then pushes the jumper off the bridge, screaming, die, you heretic. <laughs> now, that might be funny, but what isn't funny is that churches and Christians do at times separate themselves from others, refuse to have anything to do, any kind of fellowship, to celebrate unity in any form with other churches for what at times seems the flimsiest, most ridiculous of reasons. And yet, the Bible here in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And in various, numerous other places, just an example, John 17, 22, where Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. The Bible then stresses the importance of unity. It sees unity as something God wants for his people and as something that's achievable. So what's our problem with unity? That's a vitally important question. But an even more pertinent question, I believe, is when we talk of unity from a Christian biblical perspective within the context of the church, what actually are we talking about? Well, as we explore this passage together, I hope we'll be able to find answers to that question and maybe one or two more. So let's begin then by looking first at the fundamentals, the fundamentals, that on which we base our unity. And here I want to begin by making a very simple point. That is that these verses here in chapter 4, the teaching on unity that's found in these verses have a context. That is, they're found within the book of Ephesians and they come after the first three chapters of Ephesians. Now you see, in Ephesians, as in his other letters, Paul spends the first part of this letter teaching Christian truth. Making sure that we understand clearly the truth basis of the Christian faith. And then, and only then, having done that, he then moves on to issues of lifestyle. That is to how, on the basis of this truth, we should then live out our Christian faith individually and together as God's people. So then Paul's call to unity here in Ephesians 4 stands on the shoulders of the truth that he's taught in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And this includes teaching on the fundamentals of the faith. That there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That this God in Jesus Christ took on human flesh. That God became man in Christ. That in Christ he lived a perfect sinless life. Then on the cross he gave that sinless life to pay the price of our sin. And then after three days he rose from the dead. 
So by doing, demonstrating his victory over sin and death, over all the forces and powers of evil. And as we put our faith, our trust in this Jesus, in who he is, in what he has done, what he has achieved for us, then as he comes into our lives in the power, in the person of the Holy Spirit, so then we share in his victory, in part in this age, but in perfection in the age to come. In part, in the, although in this life we do physically die, we do, yet spiritually we have eternal life. And at the end of this age, when Christ returns to bring this age to its close, then physically we too will rise again, rise to be with him, to live in perfect fellowship then with God and with one another Eternally, in a perfect, restored, redeemed, recreated, new heaven and new earth. And also in part, in that although in this life Satan and sin can still influence a Christian's life, a Christian can be tempted, a Christian can and does still sin. Yet even in this life, Satan and sin no longer have authority over us. Their dominating power, their compelling power is broken. And in the, in the life to come, that power will be no more. You see, truths of this order, these fundamental truths are the basis of our Christian faith. And these are the basis on which we base our unity. Some would try to ignore this to avoid it. They would argue that the Bible calls us to unity. And that, that's what we should focus on. So we then should be actively in union with any who claim for themselves the name of Christian. With any grouping who gather around maybe a sign that says church. And what they would say is that if we come together, just come together in unity, then from that point we can sort out and talk through the fundamental truth issues that may divide us. But I've got to say, my view is that that isn't biblical, it isn't sensible, and nor does it work. I mean, if somebody, say, doesn't believe that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God, if they don't believe that he died for their sin, then they have not and they cannot receive the Spirit. So how then can we have any spiritual union with those who have not received the Spirit of Christ. You see, it doesn't matter what somebody or some group call themselves. Without a shared truth basis, without a shared experience of Jesus Christ on the basis of that truth, we cannot have true spiritual unity. And to try and pretend that we have just doesn't Work. I mean, all the different councils and conferences that over the past hundred years or so have tried to manufacture a form of unity seem to me to have achieved very little, if anything, of any true spiritual work. So we then, we need unity in the truth as the non-negotiable basis of any true spiritual unity. However, what we don't need is uniformity. What we don't need 
It's for every church everywhere to be exactly the same. And when we demand uniformity, what that then leads to is problems, and sometimes very different problems. So, for instance, we can find Christians in churches who will have nothing to do with anyone else unless they believe exactly what they do. Major doctrines, minor doctrines, no distinction is made. You have got to believe and practice. You've got to live the faith exactly as I do. Or I'll have nothing to do with you. You've got to worship like me. You've got to organize your church life as we do. You've maybe even got to dress something like me, behave like me, before we can engage in any kind of expression of Christian unity, have any kind of meaningful fellowship. I want to say that has got nothing to do with any kind of biblical criteria for unity. It's got nothing to do with the kind of spirit unity God calls his people to. Rather, I believe that kind of attitude has about it the whiff of fear, of bigotry, and perhaps even pride. Characteristics that have got nothing to do with God, but everything to do with sin. A very different expression of a desire for uniformity comes at this from a a totally different angle. This time, it's not in demanding that everybody be the same, but rather it's saying that different churches, different denominations, different styles of worship, etc., is saying that this is inherently wrong and sinful. Now, I would say, I don't believe that's the case. For I believe people are different. I believe God made us different. He made us with different personalities. He made us with different tastes and styles that we enjoy. I don't think God does want us all and doesn't want the church all to be the same. Because God loves variety. Just look at the world he's made. Now, God doesn't want uniformity in the church. What he wants is unity. That is, he wants us, different as we are at times, to communicate with one another, to value one another, respect one another, and to work with one another in the mission of the church, in the mission of taking the gospel to those who are outside of Christ. He wants to do it, us to do that with those we are spiritually united to. And let me just be clear. I take more than I take my share of the blame anyway. I think we need to work harder at this. We need to work harder to find ways of celebrating unity with those who we are united to in Christ. And just one last point to underline what's been said before we move on. Look again at what Paul actually says here in verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, it's not about creating a false unity. It's not about trying to manipulate a non-existent unity into being. It's not about that. This is about maintaining a God-given unity. And we're to make every effort, it says, to keep this unity. This isn't something that's optional. This isn't something that's secondary, something that's unimportant. But we, that's what Paul says, we have to give everything to make this unity that actually is ours in Christ, to make this a lived out here and now experience. But let's move on from the fundamentals on which we base our unity 
to look at the fruit that leads to unity. And this is laid out for us here in verse 1 and 2. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now you see, what, what Paul here is calling God's people to, using his own example and his own apostolic authority as an encouragement, this man who's now a prisoner for Christ because of his commitment to Christ, to his gospel, to his church, as Paul responded in love to the Christ who'd given everything for him, what Paul is calling God's people to is that they in turn also seek to live a life worthy of Christ. To live a life worthy of the gospel, worthy of the church. To live a life then that is consistent with who they are in Christ. And it's interesting, the word that Paul uses here that's translated worthy that word was used literally in New Testament times to speak of bringing the two sides of a scale into balance, of bringing something into equilibrium. This then is what Paul here calls God's people to do. He calls God's people to live a balanced life, to live a consistent life, to live a life where the way that they live matches up with who they are in Christ. Because it's as we live in this way, and it's only then that we then will be able to live in unity with other Christians and other churches. And here, Paul outlines for us the, the qualities, the characteristics of Christ that should be seen in the life of those who follow him and that as they are will produce and maintain unity. The first is humility. Be completely humble. Now you see, humility was a quality that before Christ and in the pagan world, even after Christ, was seen as something to be despised. It was a quality that was seen in those days among servants and slaves. It was a, a subservience. It was a crouching submissiveness that was forced upon someone who held that status. The Greek philosopher Epicetus, who's responsible, among other things, for the sayings that we commonly use, we have two ears and one mouth so that we can listen twice as much as we speak. And also, it's not what happens to you, but how you react to it that matters. This philosopher specifically listed humility among a list of qualities never to be commended. It was despised. You were to stay away from it. The humility of Christ, what's spoken of here, isn't a false humility. Isn't a forced humility. No, it is a true humility. It's a chosen humility. In fact, the word that's translated humble here actually means lowliness of mind. It's not about behavior in itself. It's about what happens in the mind that leads to the behavior. It's about choosing to recognize the worth and value of others, and it's about choosing to serve them, just as in Christ God chose to serve us. I don't think it's too difficult to see the impact 
that this can have on unity. But you see, pride, in one way or another, is at the root of most division. Whereas where people are humble, unity flourishes. John Stott, he sums it up like this. If instead of manoeuvring for the respect of others, which is pride, we give them our respect by recognising their intrinsic God-given worth, which is humility, we shall be promoting harmony, unity in God's new society. The next quality that should be in our lives and that promotes unity is linked to humility, related to it. Gentleness. As it says in verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Now this is a word that in the Old Testament, among others, was used of Moses in Numbers 12, verse 3. And that in the New Testament is used of Jesus. Indeed, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, it's used there in partnership with humility. As Jesus there is said to be gentle and humble in heart. The roots, though, of the word that's translated gentle, the roots of this word lie in the domesticating and the training of animals. So you see, this word then, gentle, this isn't about weakness. No, it's about strength brought under control. It's about strength that's channeled in order to serve others. And it's not too difficult again to see, is it? How strength brought under control. How strength that doesn't look to get its own way, but strength rather that serves for the sake of the good of all that chooses to go that way. It's not too difficult to see how this quality helps unity to flourish. The third and fourth quality that should be characteristic in a Christian's life, prevalent in the church and that will lead to and maintain unity, are patience and forbearance, bearing with one another. And Harold Hona, he expresses the biblical understanding of patience like this. He says, patience is that cautious endurance that does not abandon hope. It pertains to waiting patiently without immediate results like the farmer who waits for his harvest. God is the greatest example. He stayed his wrath when he was wronged by human sin. Thus must the believer stay his or her in patience or vengeance when wronged by another believer, exhibiting patience towards one another. And then forbearance, bearing with one another. This is really just a, a refinement of this. This is about dealing with people who are being difficult or about dealing with difficult situations in a controlled and thoughtful and restrained way. With the final quality, Paul highlights, love. This quality be, really being the crown that holds all the others together. For this love that's spoken of here, God's love, agape love, that God, the love that God expects and in the Holy Spirit enables his people to channel through their lives. This love has as a defining characteristic that it always seeks the highest good for the other person, the person loved. Particularly that it will work and do all in its power to see the will of God fulfilled in the life of those loved. 
and will demonstrate whatever humility, patience, gentleness, forbearance is needed to see that achieved. These then are the fruit that enable unity to be maintained. And I say to you that whenever we see a Christian able to live in constructive fellowship with others, whenever we see a united church, whenever we see a church that's truly operating as a church family, then we see these kind of qualities in abundance. But equally, when we don't see these, these kind of qualities, then what we find are divisive Christians, disunited churches, with this conclusively pointing to the fact that spiritually, in at the root, there is something seriously spiritually wrong. Because if we're spiritually one with Jesus, and if we're walking close with Jesus, as we should, then this kind of fruit, these characteristics, they will be seen in our lives. And if they're not, what that then indicates is that we are not actually living with Jesus Christ actively as Lord. That instead we're living again in the flesh. We're living again in sin. And so we are not. And we cannot be until that changes filled with the Spirit. Finally, we're going to finish now by looking at the, the foundation of our unity. That is, where does all this come from? Why does God see unity as so important? Why? And here we, we need to look at verse 4 to 6, where it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, who is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, you can come at this in a number of different ways, but, but basically, it boils down to this. What this is about is the Trinity. The Trinity. There is one Father who creates the one family. There is one Lord Jesus who is the basis of our one faith, one baptism, and who alone can bring hope. Hope to a world that's separated from God by sin, and without hope, but for his sinless sacrifice on our behalf. And there is one spirit, one spirit who comes in power into the lives of all who put their trust in Jesus, and who then makes us one body, who makes us, despite all our many differences, one body, one people, one family in Christ. So you see, unity, oneness with with within this, the scope for diversity, unity is in at the foundation of who God is, our triune God. This is an expression of his glory, of his perfection. And he expects this, this foundation of unity, but with room for diversity, he expects this to be reflected in the life of the people who by faith have become his in the life of his church. Well, what does this mean? All of this for us today. What does it mean for Hamilton Baptist Church? Well, surely it must mean that in our personal lives that we should devote ourselves and recommit ourselves again 
to staying close to God. That this fruit that nourishes unity, that this might be there in our lives in abundance. And as for the church, well surely what this says to us is that unity isn't just an optional extra. No, we're called to work at it. Remember again, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. So churches then that share with us a common understanding of the main salvation truths of the faith, we shouldn't be neutral about communicating with them and working with them. We shouldn't wait till they come to us. No, we should be active in seeking out ways in which we can celebrate together our unity in Christ. Now, I've said it before, I've said it again, I think we've got work to do here. But in this, we should allow diversity. We shouldn't expect other churches and other Christians to look like us, to worship like us exactly, to think exactly as we do, to practice the faith in every detail just as we do. We shouldn't expect that. We've no right to. No, as long as we share in those fundamental truths, as long as we share in that same knowledge of Christ and that same life and experience of the Spirit of Christ, then we should work at unity. We should work at finding ways that we can express our unity. And even when differences in doctrine and understanding make that difficult, maybe impossible, to work with others, let's still make sure that we are gracious and generous towards them. Let's make sure that even then, that we show them as much humility and gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love as we possibly can. So that as far as we are able, that in every circumstances, that we live lives that are a worthy witness to our faith and to our God. Let's come and let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for just your love for us as your people and for your desires for the church. And Lord, we pray that as much as we can, that we will seek to see your purposes for your people fulfilled in our lives, fulfilled in us individually and fulfilled in us as a church. Lord, make us gentle and humble. Make us patient. Help us to forbear with one another. Help us together to be a united people and then seek to live in unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.